tonight's episode of Board Chitless is sponsored by The Game Steward. The Game Steward is an online game store offering Kickstarter board games out of print and imported games at reasonable prices. It's time to play. Welcome to Board Chitless. Today's guest is Mark McKinnon, a game designer whose dark vision of an apocalyptic future is being made manifest in his upcoming board game, Wreck and Ruin. I met Mark at UK Games Expo and he seemed like a thoroughly nice chap. And we've chatted a few times since about his game in the industry at large. So we're very pleased to have him on the show today. Mark, how the devil are you? I'm fine, Tristan. How are you? Thanks for having me. Very good, thanks. Now it's it's a pleasure to be able to speak to you in, in this capacity, finally. Yeah. So let's just jump straight into uh, the the gaming stuff. We'll we'll come to Wreck and Ruin in a bit, but could you tell us a little bit about yourself first, how you got started, maybe give us some background on you know your interests, Mark, and, and what led you to board game design in the first place? Yeah, so what happened was I started off kind of like most people. So I grew up playing board games, you know, the kind of the staples, the Monopoly, Boom. go for both. <laughs> All that kind of, yeah, you don't know that's bad until you start designing yourself. <laughs> but yeah, I, I grew up with that stuff and um, I've got a next door neighbour, he's maybe two, three years older than me and I just, I kind of, I went round into the house one day and he, and he had these little metal models and I was probably around about 10 at the time. And I was like, I don't know what that is, but I want in on it. <laughs> you know how he, like, he, he was right into it. It was Warhammer 40k that he was really into. And uh, I just, I seen this stuff and it just, it was like stepping into a new world. And I was like, you know, I want to do this. So I started off, I moved into Space Crusade, it was for me. Yeah, and uh, and then eventually went on to the hard stuff, but into forty k itself. <laughs> the hard oh. stuff. <laughs> yeah, 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 you know what I mean. Yeah, the the old lead injection. Yeah, I got I got um, suspiciously excited about White Dwarf magazine. Just seeing it on the shelf and seeing like the miniatures, the painted miniatures on the front cover. When I was little, it was like uh, it was like being sucked into another universe or something. Yeah, but even now, like if you go into W. H. Smith, and you see the magazine. I still get that same feeling, even though I'm not into it anymore. You know, you still see it. And you're like, oh, that looks pretty. So, so was Warhammer was the big game for you as a kid? Then growing up, was it, or did did you perhaps experiment with? Because Games Workshop back in the nineties. Um, I, I, I don't know how old you are, Mark. For, so forgive me for making an assumption here. But back in the nineties, Games Workshop had a huge array of games that ran alongside uh, Warhammer, um, and I'm particularly thinking of uh, Dark Future. <laughs> I don't know, did you ever play that by any chance? I actually didn't, no. Oh, really? Uh, no. Uh, yeah, the only kind of car game that I played actually was Thunder Road. Right. And I, I really enjoyed that one, so I don't know if you played that one. I haven't actually, but I've got a, fr- a friend who, uh, who threatens to introduce us to it. Is it still good? Is it one of those that's lasted the test of time? I've not played it for years. I, I did... I raided my mum's loft to try and find it, and unfortunately, uh, it's nowhere to be seen. But yeah, the, the game I remember, you know, I actually can't remember how to play it, but I just remember always wanting to play it any chance I got. The kind of basic idea was that you had two boards that were pieces of, of road, and the idea was that you had to basically outrun everyone else. So, what happened was, if I remember right, you had three different vehicles and 
you rolled three dice and you basically decided which which score you'd allocate to each vehicle to move it. When you reached the end of the board, you would basically take the second the, the board at the back. You'd completely wipe that of any vehicles that were left on it, and then it goes in front again to to continue the road. Yeah, you had to be careful of not falling too far behind, or you'd you'd get wrecked. But what happened was when you moved the board forward, the vehicles still stayed on the board as hazards. The way you describe it, you know, with you taking the board off the back and putting it on the front, and that's how like it keeps it going. And it's a long time since I played Dark Future, probably about twenty five years or something, but. Um, I seem to remember that's similar to how it played and you could, if you had a car, you could shunt it into somebody on a bike and you just instantly wipe them out and maybe take a, a bit of damage to your car and stuff. So Thunder Road, was was that um, what sort of gave you the idea for designing Wreck and Ruin then? Or are they, is that just, were you on a completely different tangent? Did you design any games between Wreck and Ruin and, and um, I mean, is Wreck and Ruin your first game design maybe? or When I, I looked out my old... Space Crusade um, from my mum's loft. I managed to find it mostly intact, bits, bits missing here and there. But yeah, what I was surprised was that I was looking this after maybe six, seven months of of developing Wreck and Ruin, and I found an old school jotter inside the box, and it had my own map designs in it and my own scenarios for Space Crusade. I, yeah, but I don't remember doing it, and I was just thinking. You know, obviously at some point I was interested in doing something like that. Yeah. I just never took it anywhere. And then it was quite nice to come back and see that and think, even back then, I still had a bit of interest in, in doing something along those lines. And it's kind of came a bit full circle now, where I'm now back in it and I'm now actually doing it. So, yeah, it was quite, quite a nice experience. Yeah. it's um Well, it plays into your sort of creative spirit, doesn't it? I think a lot of... A lot of those games, especially like Games Crusade, uh, Game Space Crusade and Hero Quest, and those kinds of scenario-driven games, really encouraged that. You know, when we were kids, to sort of come up with your own adventures and stuff. Um, and I, I remember the same thing. I used to use school maths books because they only had the squares in them. You know, and just draw out the uh, the layout for Space Crusade and that, and and uh, stumbled across a load of those scenarios when I was a kid. But I mean, I suppose there's a difference between sort of developing uh, a scenario for a game that exists and then going all out and starting from scratch with your own complete design. What sort of gave you the the impetus or the wherewithal to, to follow Wreck and Ruin through from like a, an idea in your head to this fully completed game, you know, that you've now got with miniatures and artwork and everything else? What was the sort of the driver for that? After a, a long break, I got back into kind of gaming. I, had, I hadn't touched it for years. Um, and I started playing different games out there, you know, I'd, I'd left the kind of the scene when it was basically Warhammer or Hasbro kind of thing. You, you didn't have it, all the kind of in-betweens that you have now. Yeah. And so I started getting interested in games. I started playing games and then I also came across Kickstarter through that and then hit that like an absolute fiend. <laughs> I still to this day cannot admit how how much I went. Let's just say I got super backer within my first few months. <laughs> You're a Kickstarter addict. It actually came about from I was I was really interested in in playing board games again. You know that way, like any kind of geek hobby that we have. I think when you first get back into it or or involved in it, you kind of 
you do jump in like head first and just you know yeah you get absolutely obsessed so I was really into board games but I was still in a situation where I didn't have really anyone to play with so I had one friend that was interested in it but his own stuff to do so it's quite hard to arrange stuff with him like on a regular basis so I was playing a lot of Fallout on the PlayStation I was playing it for maybe four hours and then I actually just paused the game and I thought I've just spent four hours not really doing anything and I, f- I felt like I wanted I would much rather play board games and then that night I just had this crazy dream about cars and cars fighting and blowing each other up and it was kind of mixed in with the kind of fallout world yeah I woke up at that mo- that morning and um I just got out of bed around about six o'clock and just I just started writing and no interest in doing anything like that before that point. It just kinda came over me and I just all of a sudden I just felt like I had to do this thing. I just kinda started fleshing out the world and then I started I kind of I put together my kind of first draft of my rules. And so I phoned my brother and I said, I've I've kinda I've created this game and I want to give it a try and see see how it works. So, you know, I've got a load of A4 pages and drew grids on them and just cut out little tokens. I mean, it started off literally a little piece of paper just saying bike on it and an arrow showing which direction it was going in. Yeah. So we sat down and we played the game and the game was completely broke. (laughs) But we enjoyed it and after, you know, after we finished and my brother said, do you know what? He said, you're actually on to something here. I'd not actually thought about making a game to sell. It's just something to kind of keep me within the kind of board game scene without necessarily having to have other people about. But never in my wildest de- dreams would I thought that I would have ended up where I am just now. That was never the plan. It sounds like a bit of a familiar story, Mark, in that, you know, uh, you have the sort of hiatus from gaming maybe when you're a late teenager and stuff and you sort of rediscover it when you're a little bit older and you're settling down again and that. Um, and also, once you've got an idea like that that just won't let go, you have to sort of get creative and, and get your ideas down on paper. It's interesting as well that you say you have these pieces of paper with bike and an arrow written on it and stuff. That's actually, I think, the, the cleverest way of designing a game because then when you find it's broken and you have to completely redesign it, you've not invested too much in how it looks. The One of the first prototypes I designed uh, of a game, it had this really elaborate layout. I'd found all the correct artwork for it and everything. I went and got all these cards printed on ArtsCow. It arrived, we played it, and it was trash. You know, It was completely broken. And I was like, wow, I've invested so much time at the wrong end here. You know, we need to get the gameplay working first. I wish I could say that I stuck with that mentality, but I did kind of make the same mistake myself. <laughs> oh, really? So, yeah, so what happened was kind of, I started designing the game around about January 2016 is kind of when I started the work um, and then I kind of I got to the stage maybe a few months down the line where I, I came to this crossroads where I had to decide do I leave it as it is or you know or do I I know it's going to cost me money from this stage on but if I start down this path then I have to see it through to the end Yeah. so I kind of I decided right uh, you know, I'm going to do this, whatever it takes me is what I have to do. So I made that decision and then I started getting involved with conventions. Now, at that point, 
I still didn't really label myself as a designer or anything like that. So the first kind of experience of Wreck and Ruin out with my friend circle was I took it to Aircon. Oh yeah. I took it to Aircon 3, so that was the last one in Bradford. And I'd went to a local printer's and I'd got everything, you know, some nice boards and nice cards, you know, the thing the thing looked brilliant. And I went down, you know, picked it up, jumped in the car, went down to Bradford. And you know that way, I was, I was quite naive thinking, this game design thing, this is easy. First design, first first crack at it, I've smashed it. And I, so I went down there and I booked myself in for a, a playtest slot. And I sat down and I said, right, this is the game, so this is how it's played. And kind of got through it and I was, we got through a turn. And then I was like that, it says, right, so from now, from this point on, things start to change. And one of the playtesters just kind of looked at me and he, he put down that you have like a kind of guide which gives you all the information you have about your vehicles. And he just kind of gently put that down and looked at me and said, this is why your game is broke. And I was like, oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. Yeah, like with a, with a lovely shiny prototype sitting there and that was basically the only time that it ever got used. Oh man, so what, had he just spotted like a, a, a rule or, or was it something, I guess if you said yeah, it was so broken it must have been something fundamental. The initial design, well the actual idea of the game, like I said, it was Fallout I was playing when the game, you know, when the idea came to me and my, the actual initial idea that I wanted to create was an exploration game because I liked I liked in Fallout that you you can just set off in a random direction and you'll find something that's not necessarily linked to a quest but you know you'll you find a building you can go in it you, you know there's maybe a little bit of a story in there as well and I really enjoyed that so the game started off with that kind of idea in mind and then I quickly realised I was way above my pay grade <laughs> trying to design something like that. So you were trying to basically design Fallout, the board game? I was kind of trying to do Fallout meets Command and Conquer. So, so I, wa <laughs> cool. I, wa I wanted the idea that you didn't know what was on the map until you explored it. I, I, I quickly realised my own flaws in that. So I thought, right, the whole kind of thing about Command and Conquer is... You don't know where the enemies are. Yeah. But if but if I'm playing a game on a board, I can see exactly where everyone else is. So I was like, right, that's not going to work. So I distilled it down to what I at the core was what I wanted to do was kind of when the two when the two sides met. So I focused on the the combat side of it. Just for ease, what I did was I made it on a square grid. I could draw a square grid on a piece of paper and I could make it into a square tile. But then it wasn't until I went to this playtest that they said to me, well, moving at 90 degrees for the vehicles just doesn't feel right for vehicles. Right, everything's a handbrake turn sort of thing. Yeah, he said just what should be kind of fluid motion just doesn't feel like it. It just kind of doesn't sit right with the theme that you've got. And I would, I'd be lying to myself if I said the thought hadn't crossed my mind myself but being my first design 
you know, that way I thought, well, I'll just stick with it. It's too much work to change it. <laughs> so I'd kind of, I'd still went with this idea, hoping that I could make it work. But I mean, every point that he raised, I couldn't fault. Yeah. The wind was taken right out me. And I just, I just wanted to go home after that. I'll be perfectly honest. I just wanted to go and hide. And so I left Bradford. But then the next morning I woke up and I knew exactly what I had to do. And I just tore the whole game right, stripped it right back um, and basically rebuilt it from the ground up. And it was something as simple as changing those squares into hexes. And what on the face of it would seem like a very simple change. You know, I mean, all of a sudden it did it affected how the vehicles moved, how how you attack, you know, line of sight, all that kind of stuff. Yes. All changed just ever so slightly because of this one thing. In hindsight now I can say 100% that was the, the best decision that I could have made. And not, it didn't feel like it at the time. It's important to listen to all feedback. Absolutely, yeah. I'd maybe at the start kind of buried my head in the sand, but from that point on, I basically made a, a decision to myself that I had to listen to, I had to let people look in and tell me what they thought of it because that was the only way that the game was going to be the best game I could make it. Yeah, um, it's tough. It can be really tough, um, but... If you don't learn from those lessons, you know, the game is going to suffer as a result. So hats off to you for sort of taking that on the chin and, uh, and going back to the drawing board with it. Because, yeah, I've, I've been there myself, you know, where you think you've got this great game, you sit down, someone plays it and they're like, no, this is why it's not working. And you're like, no, my baby, <laughs> kind of thing. Yeah, because I don't think anyone realises sometimes the amount of work that it takes just to get to that stage, even if it is a prototype. You know, they don't realise that you've invested so much time already trying to balance that to try and think of every eventuality but but you just can't no not with a with a thematic game with lots of options and stuff you you're there's almost always going to be outlying cases that you won't be able to catch no matter how many times you play test it but that's what you did you went back to the drawing board you rewrote the game basically um and pulled yes. it back again uh, which takes us to your kickstarter campaign your goal was twenty two thousand pounds um, and you made it halfway, so nearly £10,000, which is very impressive. You've got great art, miniatures, um, you had cool reviews, you got the videos on there, but funding didn't quite happen. So, I mean, this might be a bit painful, but can you just talk to us a little bit about the experience of, of the Kickstarter, maybe why you think it, it didn't fund at that stage? Yeah, so like I said, I, I'm a super backer myself, and I, I think in a way that kind of held me back because I was used to backing games that were massively successful so I was in a situation where like I'd backed a lot of cool mini projects so I was used to seeing stretch goals getting smashed every day you know so I was, I was used to updates saying oh this is what we've done this is where we are and all that kind of thing yeah. and and so when I didn't fund you know when I when initially when the initial momentum wasn't there I don't think it actually produced any kind of update for a while. And then it wasn't until Richard Simpson of We're Not Wizards, he he messaged me and he said, are you going to do an update? And and I said, I've not really got anything to say just now. And he says, 
it doesn't matter. He said, just do an update. It wasn't until I experienced the, the project myself that I realised, you know, it was the engagement that I wasn't putting into it because I was, I was waiting for something to happen to tell them rather than just being on there, just talking to people and keeping them engaged. I was too busy focusing on what I didn't have that you fail to see what you already do have. It's just as important to engage those people that have already put their faith in you as it is trying to get more people in as well. So that was kind of, that was, that was one thing that I, I did wrong and that was experience was the only way that I was going to learn that lesson. You also, you relaunched kind of around about the same time as well. So you know yourself, there was some heavy hitters on at that time as well. So we had like, Seventh Continent was back on there for another bite of the cherry. Oh yeah, the seven the seven million dollar behemoth. Exactly, yeah. So like like you said with uh, when we were talking earlier on uh, yourself about Gloomhaven, you know at a certain stage that there's some games that you can't compete with, and there's no point in even trying. Yeah. And there is only so much money in the pot as well. So you know that way when you've got something like that on there, yeah, you can do your best, but it does kind of affect. Um, how many people are going to look at your project when they've got between you know between that or something else that's that's absolutely hitting it out of the park? It does seem to be the situation now where it, it doesn't matter when you launch, you're going to be up against someone like uh, come on, you know, or one of these big um, companies that's going to make a multi-million dollar Kickstarter. Uh, given the way that board games are going as well at the moment, it's you know it's a booming market, so it is getting bigger. But also, like you say, the, the pot is getting almost tighter or, or spread more thinly between more games. So, like you say, you just have to sort of factor it in and suck it up, really, and go up against these um, these big publishers. But what's your plan for tackling that the next time around? Because you're about to relaunch Wreck and Ruin, right? Yeah. So what's, what's different this time? How are you going to market your game? How are you going to tackle that for the relaunch? I'm doing a couple of different things. Um, this time round, I've... I've approached a, a few more manufacturers, so the idea is to get the the initial funding goal down. There's a lot of things that I, I they, they tell you not to do as a first-time creator, so that is don't have a game with a large funding goal, so I tick that box. Um, don't do miniatures, tick that box as well. <laughs> you know, I weigh basically everything that they told you not to do for a first-time project, I did. Yep. And I, but it's because that was the game that I wanted to make. So it's just a case of reducing that goal to make it more achievable. I've been running ads on Facebook and stuff like that now. So all that kind of stuff helps. I put more games out into circulation with reviewers. So I've basically got this period of time round about launch where everybody's going to put their content on all at the one time to kind of just saturate the internet we're going to we're going to take over the internet for one night flood it with wreck and ruin now one one of the other things that i like to do is when when we're chatting between other designers and stuff like that and they talk about you know i'm launching this day and i launched that day i, I like to have a little bit of friendly how shall we say it, um smack talk <laughs> I, I like to do the smack talk with the with the other designers you know, I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't matter how big they are. So that that's how I deal with Cool Mini or something like that. You know, Cool Mini want to launch and I say, fine, bring it on. 
And uh, of course they do much better than me, but it still makes me feel a little bit better than myself. <laughs> like David taking on Goliath. Exactly, yeah. You, you can't beat a, a David and Goliath story, so that's what, yeah. you, you always back the underdog, don't you? Everyone loves an underdog. So what's the so what's the idea between so you talk about saturating it all at the same time? Um, how how does that compare to sort of staggering it out throughout the campaign? You know, and and sort of releasing a video every other day or having a review come out, um, and then you've got sort of content for the updates to keep it going. Is it the hope that you'll if you flood it all out, you'll fund faster? And obviously, once you're funded, that's when you can do the stretch goals and and get them in. Is it is that the plan to to get people going that way? Or the idea is just to kind of. Get all the information out there so that all the channels at the same time are basically seeing the same thing to kind of direct everyone into the campaign. Now, the games are still going to be circulating within that time, so there'll still be kind of other reviews and things like that coming in. So I've got four games in circulation. There's two in the States and two in the UK. And I say to the people, you know, it doesn't matter what you write. All I want from you is your honest opinion. You know, if you hate it, you hate it. I, I, yeah. won't, I won't put that on my Kickstarter page, of course, but... <laughs> so these aren't paid-for reviews. These are genuinely... You just sent them out to the reviewers to get their honest feedback on them. Yeah, so it's, it's a mixture of both. So I find that... But what happened when I went to... I went to Games Expo last year where, where I met yourself. Um, and that was my first experience as a trader although i had nothing to sell that was the first time i went to exhibit the game and it was the first time i'd gone in not as i'm looking for feedback but as you know this is the finished product and what happened was i was i was approached by quite a lot of reviewers podcasters things like that and they were a bit like myself kind of just starting off and i would much rather support someone who was starting off like myself, they may not have a great audience, so my, you know, what I'm giving them might not be seen by a lot of people, but they're taking a chance on me and I'm taking a chance on them, and I feel like together we can kind of grow grow the industry, you know, as we both yeah. gain in popularity, it helps everyone. Giving them the leg up sort of thing, or giving each other a leg up, I guess. How do you pick people then? Because if, you know, if you've been approached by quite a few people, do you... Is there like a set of parameters or do you have favourite reviewers or um, are you just sort of gambling it on, you know, their enthusiasm maybe or what's the sort of qualities that you look for in a video reviewer? Well, I started off basically with the people that approached me because they were the people that were genuinely interested in seeing the game and, you know, and, and made the effort. So yeah. I initially wanted to reward that because I know you know how difficult it is sometimes to make that connection with some people. Yeah. So I came away from the expo with a load of business cards and I started with them and then I started looking outwards more for people with decent audiences as well, people that I felt that would enjoy the game and you know could do some quality work with it. So like for instance the game, one of the games in the States is currently with Tantrum House they're looking at that just now but at the same time I'll put a post on Facebook and I'll say does anyone want to look at this game and whether they've got five viewers or five thousand if they say they want it I'll give them it right so yeah I literally have no no parameters at all just just get the word out I guess yeah it is yeah so when you start off like I've seen posts myself on Facebook where people say you know 
if you want to review my game, you need to have, you know, 5,000 followers minimum. Who says that? <laughs> Mr. Mathy. <laughs> <laughs> but for myself, you know, I'm starting off. Nobody knows who I am, so there's no track record to, you know, they've got nothing to compare me against. So if, if I get a message saying I'm having four friends round and we're, we've seen something about your game and I'll say, give me the address and I'll be round there in half an hour. <laughs> I will I will take the game and show it to anyone. I don't care who they are, where they are. Have you considered um, courting like some of the bigger names? I know that some people have had success with that, like uh, um, Frank West with City of Kings uh, basically pretty much targeted Rado, you know, and, and knew that he has a big following and everything. So thought, um, I'm just going to do what I can to try and pique his interest sort of thing. And to, to an extent, Isaac did that with uh, Gloomhaven as well. Um, is, is it worth the effort, do you think, of tracking down someone who's got an established audience where you know they release it and straight away you've got, you know, thousands of people who are already aware of the game? Uh, is that something you might consider, do you think? Or um, or I guess maybe, <laughs> maybe you've already sent out all the, the review copies that you have already. I have, yeah, I've, I've run out of review copies myself. Uh, so I've got one copy that I keep here. That's that's so I can still attend conventions just in, in the off chance that something comes up. It's handy to be able to reach out. And the good thing about this industry is that there are no real barriers between you and the big names that's out there. It's literally yeah. just send them a message, you know, just chat to them like you would any other person. There's no, I'm too good for you or anything like that. So... There is the only. I was planning on reaching out to Rado. Um, there was only two things that went in my way. The first one was he tends not really to like that kind of style of game, and also I had just listened to his interview on We Are Not Wizards, and at that stage he was having a bit of a hard time on Reddit, and he was talking about packing it in. Really. Yeah, so I was like, right, I'll maybe just leave him alone just now. <laughs> Give him some space. Give the man some space. <laughs> but it is kind of, you do get a bit kind of fanboy with it, you know. I was like, I'm going to message this guy. And then I was like, do you know what? No, I'm not. He's, you know, who am I? He's not going to talk to me. You mean like starstruck sort of thing? <laughs> yeah, definitely. Yeah, so I think that's part of the reason why I didn't reach out to some of the, the bigger names. But when I was at the, the expo, I did see... Uh, Tom Vazel walked past. I seen the hat a couple of times, and I did. I was praying that he would stop and look at my stuff. But good and bad, I was too busy that he couldn't get anywhere near me. Oh, well, you have to you have to fight through the crowd next time and grab him. <laughs> the, so I mean, these are the, these are people who you look up to in the industry. But I mean, these are the guys who are reviewing the games. Who inspires you in terms of designers? Do you, are there any favourite designers that you look up to? I've got two favourites. Um, and you'll probably notice a bit of a common theme between the two of them. Um, so, first of all, Eric Lang. Oh, yes. Anything that guy puts out, I am immediately interested in. Now, I do believe the guy's a little bit screw-loose. <laughs> if, for instance, you watch his video, I watched, I backed the others. Um, so that was my kind of first experience of Cool Mini. And then I was getting ready to play. I went round to my friend's house and he said, right, let's go on YouTube and we'll have dinner and we'll, we'll watch a kind of playthrough video. And it was one with 
Eric and actually his own team. And uh, so we were watching him play it and I was like, do you know what? That guy is genuinely evil. You can see it in his eyes that you know <laughs> he, he he was playing he was playing the sin. And you know that way and he was like literally tempting them towards their own demise. And I was like, that is both amazing and unhinging at the same time. <laughs> and the other one is Adam Putz. Oh yeah, Kingdom Death. Kingdom Death, yeah. I mean, the fact that one guy pretty much did all that on his own is, is testament to, you know, the quality of stuff that he produces is amazing. It's a staggering achievement of a project. Did you back it from the first time round then, or did you come to that later on? Yeah, so what happened was I, I wasn't into board games when it first came around, but as soon as I started getting interested in Kickstarter and looking for new games on eBay and stuff like that, that I came across the Kingdom Death stuff. And I was like, do you know what? This game looks like it's right up my street. But then I seen the $400 price tag and I was like, maybe not. So luckily I came across it by accident that it was back on Kickstarter for the 1.5. Um, I literally just jumped on Kickstarter for a look one day and there it was. And I was like, I'll be having some of that, please. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I remember um, the reason I got interested in the first place, I think it sort of got mentioned on the Warhammer Quest uh, forums, you know, that it was a one-to-four-player co-op dungeon crawler, and I was like, wow, that sounds cool. Um, and it was the it was my first ever Kickstarter that I, as a backer, you know, um, and I went on and was just looking at all this crazy monsters and stuff, like, what the hell is this? Um, so I thought I'd give it a chance anyway, see how it goes, backed it, forgot about it, and, you know, he went away for maybe three or four years. I can't remember how long it was. The sort of gest- It was about four years, yeah, 2012 or something it initially launched. So so the, gest- the gestation period on it was huge. And, and when it sort of came back around, I was like, oh, yeah, this, yeah, oh, maybe it's good. You know, it's, it's probably crazy because, you know, it's been a long time. It's got, it's all about the miniatures and everything. And then it landed and the gameplay was jaw-dropping. I was like, wow, it's, it's literally gone away and made a 10 out of 10 game here, you know, and probably the best miniatures in the world. (laughs) The strange thing is, though, that the game itself still kind of divides the market a bit, even though it's so great. Yeah, well, it's a a thematic dice-rolling game, so you'll always have, like, a a core audience who would just never be interested in, in that style of game. And, of course, there's lots of racy art in it as well, so... I think that cuts a huge swathe of people out of the equation as well. But yeah, he definitely stuck to his guns and, and uh, you know decided on his theme and what he was going for and, and just stuck with it. And the result is, yeah, inspiring, I guess is exactly the right word. So, I mean, is that one of your favourite games then? Because that's the only game he's designed and you mentioned him as a favourite designer. Pretty much the only game that I'll play just now that's not my own. So I've kind of, I've started, I've got two campaigns running. I've got one with some local guys and then I also started another one with the Unlucky Frog podcast. Have you came across those guys yet? Oh, no, not yet. You'll meet them at Expo, don't worry. They're um, just a, a new kind of Scottish podcast and they kind of they reached out to me when we were at Glasgow Games Festival and invited me around and then I ended up just turning up one day with, you know, a sore back and Kingdom Death 
in my hands. It weighs a fair bit, doesn't it? Yeah, and to be fair, they had watched Shut Up and Sit Down's kind of overview of it before I turned up. And they decided, based on that, that the game wasn't for them. And then when they played it, they're like, this is not what we were led to believe the game was. Well, I guess, I think that's part of the, the issue, is that a lot of the stuff that we see about Kingdom Death is to do with the the pinups and things like that, which are actually not part of the game. They are yeah. they're they're from the world. Yeah, I, I think it's been it's been difficult to split that, hasn't it? Because it's obviously a huge part of the funding was the pinups, but um, they've got nothing to do with the actual gameplay itself. So I think from an outsider's point of view, it would be difficult to distinguish the pinups from the game. But you'd think a, you'd think a reviewer would make that distinction more clear rather than less. Yeah. So what happened was they came in thinking it was that they're a married couple, so I was playing with both um, him and his wife, and you know they kind of had this preconception that the game was very sexist and you know very gratuitous for no apparent reason. And then when I when I set the game up, I said right, this is the game, and they're like. It's not, it's not the same picture that we were painted. Yeah, and they and they loved it. Well, I think to be honest, we've got sidetracked a little bit from your stuff there, Mark, by talking <laughs> about Kingdom Death. And I could talk about games with you all day, but I'm conscious of the time here, so I'm just going to um, wrap things up with. Can you tell us about uh, your forthcoming projects? Well, I guess the biggest thing is going to be the date. When's uh, when's Wreck and Ruin coming back to Kickstarter? Sixth of March is the is the date. So. 7 o'clock our time, that big button's been pushed. Nice. And you're in charge of all the social media and everything, aren't they? So if people wanted to ask you anything about the game or get in contact with you directly, you're the guy that's running the show, is that correct? Yeah, so I'm literally, it's a one-man band. It's just me doing everything. And yeah, if, if anyone wants to speak to me, I'm always happy to, to talk anything about the game whatsoever. So that's what I love about the industry as a whole, just the accessibility to, to everything. I'm really excited about it coming back, Mark. I was back of the first time around and I'm 100% certain it's going to fund this time around. So I uh, wish you the best of luck with everything. And it's been absolutely fantastic having you on the show. We'll, we'll get you back um, at a later date after the campaign and we can uh, do a, a, a decompress and go through how everything went. A post-mortem. A post-mortem. <laughs> a post-mortem. <laughs> dissect it. But um, yeah, thanks so much for coming on the show and um, we'll, we'll speak to you again soon. That's great. Thanks for having me, Tristan. It's been fun. Yeah.